Women as One promotes talent in medicine by bringing the unique talents of women to the forefront. We believe that, as one, women can use their collective voice to change the landscape of medicine. My name is Samantha Rudolph. Most people call me Sam. I am the co-founder and CEO of Babyation. We are a parent tech company that is unapologetically for moms, and our first product is a quiet and discreet breast pump. So everybody assumes that I had a child, used a breast pump, it did not meet my needs, and I then wanted to create something better. And while that is a perfectly logical assumption, that is actually not our origin story. In 2014, I was on a ski trip with my husband. We were in Vermont. Um, we used to live on the East Coast at the time. And we had lovely lives as real people. We had real jobs. We did not have kids. So we were literally living our best life in some ways, at least. And uh, it was a Sunday morning. I read an article in the New York Times. And the article had the headline, Shouldn't the breast pump be as elegant as an iPhone and as quiet as a Prius by now? and did not have kids. Like I said, I was not pregnant. Kids were not really on my radar, but I was bored. It was a Sunday morning and I'm like, I'll read this article. And I saw my future flash before my eyes. I thought at some point I wanted to be a mom. At some point I wanted to be working mom. At some point I wanted to breastfeed. And I had no idea that a breast pump was even part of the equation. And as I read more and more of this article, I just got really angry and I turned to my husband and I actually shook him awake and I said, Jared, can you believe that this is one more thing women have to deal with? And he opened up one eye, said, breast pumps aren't that complicated, I can build one, and proceeded to go back to sleep. And if you knew him, you would know that's not really a strange thing for him to say. He is an incredibly gifted engineer. He can build something out of nothing more times than I can say. And I believed him. We went about our day, we went skiing, and we were driving back home from Vermont to Connecticut, where we lived at the time. And we were bored in the car, and I said, let's play a car game. Let's talk about what the theoretical, hypothetical breast pump should be. And we kind of very quickly honed in on this need for discretion, that a mom, a woman should be able to use a breast pump whenever, wherever, however she wanted, and it should be able to integrate her life instead of having to revolve her life around this breast pump. And so we quickly realized it should be quiet. It should be discreet. We should minimize what's on the body. It should be controllable by app. And so those kind of guiding principles became our North Star. And so in 2015, we decided to take the leap and start the company. And fast forward several years, we've cleared the FDA because breast pumps are classed in medical devices. Our patents have issued and we're now in the manufacturing process. Neither one of us had any experience raising capital. That was something, a skill that we really had to learn. The way we learned it was really by talking to people. You know, we tried to do research on the internet. Obviously, we tried to read other entrepreneurs' experiences that were shared, but a lot of it was our gut. A lot of it was kind of inherently understanding the value that we knew we were providing. And there are certainly times that we have walked away from money either because the investor wasn't a good fit or because they didn't understand what we were trying to do or how we were trying to do it. The most important thing I've learned on the fundraising front is certainly to know your value and to not be afraid to walk away even when it's really difficult. What I didn't realize, you know, I kind of had that philosophy from the beginning, but what I didn't realize is that there are bad deals and bad deals are not only bad deals in and of themselves, they have a ripple effect. And it took me having an accidental meeting with a kind of very prominent angel investor out of Silicon Valley who basically said, if you take a deal that was on the table a few years ago, not only will you basically not have enough of the company, but because of that, investors won't touch you because you won't have enough skin in the game. And that second part is what I didn't understand. I, I kind of inherently understood that if you give away too much of the company, you have less of it. 
But what I didn't understand is how much future investors care about that. And it's naive now because, of course, I understand it after having been doing this for a while. But at the time, it was a really important lesson to learn. And I'm so grateful that I didn't have to learn it by making a mistake. Someone prevented me from doing that. But it, it just goes to show that every decision you make matters. The type of investment vehicle you use matters. The way you give the money away in terms of equity matters. Who you bring on your cap table matters. And there are so many lessons, again, that I'm grateful to have learned before I made a mistake. I've always tried to be as strategic as I can when it comes to fundraising. I didn't have a fantastic network of people that I could call up, but I did have my brain. And I kind of, you know, understood that just like you have influencers on social media to help influence people's purchasing decisions, there are also influencers in the investor world. And if you get, you know, either an individual or a fund, that can signal to other people that you are investable or worthy of investment. And so I've always tried to think about it like that. We were very fortunate that our first investor is incredibly influential and being able to say that that he invested via his fund helped get other people on board. Similarly, we've tried to take that approach with angel investors, both locally and on the coast. And that approach has really served us well. For us at different stages in the business, it's been easier than I thought and harder than I thought. Breast cancer class two medical devices, so we go through the FDA's 510K clearance. And we knew just from understanding kind of the process and talking to our regulatory consultants that as soon as we passed our safety testing, the FDA clearance was all but a foregone conclusion. Yes, you still have to submit your thousand page document. Yes, they have questions. Yes, there's a back and forth. But ultimately, the safety aspect is what's most important for a device like ours. So we knew that once we had all of our safety tests, the FDA clearance would come. We couldn't say exactly when it was, would come, but we were confident you know, to a very high degree that we would receive that clearance. That was a more difficult time to fundraise than I expected because we hadn't yet cleared the FDA and people were still afraid of those three letters. I think when people hear FDA, they often think of drug trials and a product like ours has a very different path. Certainly once we cleared the FDA, once our patent issued, the fundraising we did became a lot more fun, a lot more simple. And those conversations were just really fun to have because we kind of ticked so many boxes. So at that point it became, do you like our solution? Do you believe in this market opportunity? And ultimately, do you like me? In a lot of ways, you know, I think probably the biggest surprise is that fundraising, especially for an early stage company, is quite personal. And an investor's decision to invest or not often comes down to if they like the founder. And so for better or for worse, it makes me feel good when people like me. You also kind of have to develop a system for not taking it personally if they choose not to invest or if they pass or if they ghost you, because to some extent that is a reflection on you. So I can't speak for every woman, but what I can tell you, and, and I'm fascinated by the statistic, more than 60% of women would rather talk about their own death than about money. And, and that to me, there's a lot to unpack, right? That just says it all. That to me speaks to risk tolerance and risk preferences that I believe are inherently different between women and men. I think it speaks to just comfort and vocabulary around talking about it. I was in the car with my mom and my four and a half year old son, and they were talking about something and, and she said to him, you know, there are certain things that we only talk about as family. We don't talk about religion outside of our family. We don't talk about politics outside of our family. We don't talk about money outside of our family. And I really sat there and I didn't say anything, although I really thought about if I wanted to push back in that moment, because I do think that because we're conditioned to not talk about money, and by the way, this was to my son, not to a 
a theoretical daughter. But because we're conditioned to not talk about it, at least for me, I was really uncomfortable pitching for money for a while because I had been conditioned to not talk about money. So I think it, it kind of cuts both ways. It, it means that women are less comfortable jumping into invest. I think it also means that female founders have an additional hurdle internally to overcome. I think we have a lot of external hurdles to overcome, right? The data backs that up. But I also think that some of that is internal. You know, it is interesting. So at this point, I view every opportunity to talk about my product as a pitch, even though it's not really a pitch, even though I don't expect to get money from it. Every single day I talk about my product to my company, be it to my family, be it to my friends, be it to current potential investors, be it to moms that might buy our product, be it to people I have coffee with or podcasts I'm doing. I talk about babyation all the time. That is probably my most important job is to talk about what I'm doing. And it's fascinating because nine times out of 10, I will have a male of any age say to me, I want to invest. How do I do that? But women, I almost always have to invite them. And I don't know, right, that I can't speak to if that is just, it does not even enter their minds that an investment opportunity is possible or that they themselves could invest, or if it's that they feel that they need to be invited or that it's presumptuous. I, I certainly can't speak to the psychology behind it, but I very much find it fascinating. I think women have no problem being philanthropic. I think women are excellent philanthropists, but I think that there's a gap around impact investing where you can accomplish the same goal more often with a for-profit company than you can with a non-profit company. And I think that even with the impact investing side, there's still a hurdle that women have to overcome about making a quote-unquote investment. I think the word investment feels much different than a charitable donation, because an investment can be wrong. An investment can lose money. And I think we as women often lose sight of the fact that we can do real good in the world. We can also make money while we're doing it. And I think that we haven't fully figured out, and again, I'm generalizing, how to tie those things together. So I think the solution is talking about it. I think the solution is talking about really great companies that we meet, really interesting founders, and recognizing that it's okay to want to grow our wealth. It's okay to talk about that with our friends. It's not bragging. You know, I, I think that it's commonplace for men, I'm gonna be stereotypical here, right, on the golf course <laughs> to talk about their latest investments. And I think that women still aren't there. And so what I found really helpful is having a peer network of people where we've kind of proven socially that we are comfortable talking about money, at least to a certain extent. And once you do it once, you're more comfortable doing it again and again and again and again. It's like any other skill. You have to practice it, get better at it. And so the first thing that I think we have to do is practice talking about it. The next thing we have to do then is actually do it. Because it's one thing to say, I can talk about money or I can talk about an investment, but then you actually have to make the investment. And I think we see a lot of proof in some of the younger startup founders, many of the founders of the unicorn companies pay it forward by investing in other early stage companies. And I think that that needs to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's how we solve the problem, right? We change the amount of investment in female founded companies. This is gonna sound really obvious, by investing in female founded companies. And I think at least for me, when I used to think of, oh my gosh, someone wants me to invest in their company. I used to think that that was, a half a million dollars, like that that was how much I had to invest. 
And that's not the case. Many companies can be invested in, especially in the early stages, for $5,000, $10,000, $25,000. I realize that that is not $0. That is still real money that people work very hard to earn. But I do think that there are some women of a certain income level with certain means to whom $5,000, $10,000, $25,000 is achievable. They just need to consider that as an option. And I think, you know, so, so I like to, whenever I talk to any woman, I consider kind of my conversation with her as an invitation to consider investing, not necessarily in babyation. I'm not pitching anybody on me or on my company, simply saying this is a really great way to support women and in the area of impact investing to do well by doing good and to consider it as an option of paying it forward.